Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I am Pastor Sean Cole of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I'm also a professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I think this is going to be a fun one. We're going to be digging into a lot of text. We're going to get into the deep end of the water. We're going to interact with our traditionalist, non-Calvinistic Southern Baptist brothers who seem to want to deny total inability as taught in the scriptures and want to redefine what dead in sin truly means. I've been listening to some podcasts, I've been reading some blogs, some Facebook interaction, and it seems like uh, there's just a lot of discussion right now about what it means to be dead in sin. And so that's what we're going to focus on in this podcast today. What does deadness mean? When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 1 and following, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Twice in that passage of scripture, Paul makes the statement, you were dead in trespasses. And so what does that really mean? What does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins? And what does it mean for God to make us alive? Now, almost all Orthodox Christians will affirm original sin, that we have inherited a sin nature from Adam. What Adam did in the garden has consequences for us today. Almost all Orthodox evangelical Christians will affirm that. Calvinists... And Arminians will affirm not only total depravity, but total inability. For the Calvinist, we believe that sinners are spiritually dead and God must regenerate them in order to grant them the gifts of repentance and faith to come to Christ. Arminians believe that sinners are also spiritually dead and have to be made alive, and God does that through prevenient grace. The traditionalist, non-Calvinist Southern Baptist, they will affirm total depravity, but they will not affirm total inability. And so what I want to do in this podcast is to unpack some scriptures. We're going to look deeply at those scriptures. We're going to look at some quotes from some uh, theologians. We're going to look at some historical issues. Uh, We're going to have fun in this podcast, but I thought it would be interesting to begin the discussion by listening to the words of John Wesley, one of the most famous Arminians next to Arminius himself. Uh, This was from Sermon 44 entitled, Original Sin. And John Wesley makes some very interesting statements about total depravity, total inability. He uses Genesis 6-5 as the basis. And you know Genesis 6-5, God saw that um, there was human wickedness and every thought of his heart was evil continually uh, right before the flood. 
And so listen to some of the, the statements that, that John Wesley surprisingly makes. Quote, God saw all the imaginations of the thoughts of his heart, of his soul, his inward man, the spirit within him, the principle of all his inward and outward motions. He saw all the imaginations. It's not possible to find a word of more extensive signification and includes whatever is formed, made, fabricated within. And, and he later goes on to define sin as this. All men are conceived in sin, shapen in wickedness. And hence there is in every man a carnal mind, which is an enmity against God, which is not, cannot be subject to his law, and which so infects the whole soul that there dwelleth in him, in his flesh, in his natural state, no good thing, but every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is evil, only evil, and that continually. And by nature, we do not, number one, know God. Number two, we do not love God. Number three, we do not fear God. And all men are atheists in the world. But as soon as God opens the eyes of their understanding, they see that state they were in before. And they are deeply convinced that every man living, themselves especially, are by nature altogether vanity. That is folly and ignorance, sin and wickedness. Keep to the plain, old faith, once delivered to the saints and delivered by the Spirit of God to our hearts. Know your disease, know your cure. You were born in sin, therefore you must be born again, born of God. By nature you are wholly corrupted, by grace you shall be wholly renewed. In Adam you all died, in the second Adam in Christ you're all made alive. Those are some strong statements from an Arminian about the comprehensive nature of sin. Now, it's interesting when you talk to traditional Southern Baptists and you try to understand their view, and I'm trying to understand their view. I think I do understand their view. I don't agree with their view, but I think I understand it. I think I hopefully accurately represent it. Um, but one of the things that they will like to do is they will like to go to Ephesians 1.13 and basically make the argument that it is mankind's responsibility to be included in Christ through faith. And so, yes, they will argue that God does make us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. God makes us alive. No, no um, traditional non-Calvinistic Southern Baptist is going to say that we make ourselves alive. We're not, uh, uh, you know, we don't save ourselves. They're not going to argue that. But what they will say is that, yes, God makes us alive in Christ but you have the responsibility through faith to make sure that you are in Christ. Once you choose, once you make a contra-causal, self-determining, free will decision to come to faith in Christ, then you are through faith put in Christ and thus you are made alive then. And oftentimes what I find they do is they use Ephesians 1.13 as their argument text for that. But here's the problem. They use the NIV's awkward, very awkward translation of Ephesians 1.13. Now, what does Ephesians 1.13 say, especially in the NIV? 
Here's the NIV's translation or transliteration or, or dynamic equivalent of Ephesians 1.13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly, if you, if you have a Bible in front of you or you have a Bible program or you have on your phone where you can actually look at these um, different translations, because I'm going to begin to look at the different translations. If you look at the NIV, there are two um, words that are added to the NIV translation that are actually missing from the Greek text. You also were included in Christ. Included in Christ, that phrase is not in the original Greek. That's, a, that's an interpretive issue that the NIV has put in there. Also, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, marked in him with a seal is also more of an interpretation. Let me give you the, the, the translation from the literal Greek that I believe is the most accurate. And I've sat and I've, I've worked through this text in the original language. And I think the ESV, probably the New American Standard as well, I'm going to give you all of them, but I think the ESV comes the closest to the translation from the Greek. Let me give you the ESV's rendering of Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay? Now keep that in mind, and let's look at the New King James Version. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Very similar, the order. Let's look at the Holman Christian Standard Bible's version. Ephesians 1.13 when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, that's probably a good translation there as well. I like that one as, as I'm looking at it. Now let's look at the New American Standard Bible, 95 update. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. A little awkward there, the New American Standard. Actually, I like the, the ESV and the Holman Christian Standard Bible's translation of that. The main verb in that text is you were sealed. You were sealed. Now, what's the order in that text? Here's the order in the text. What comes first? You heard the word of truth. What comes second? You believed in Jesus. What came third? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, and when you believed, you were sealed. Now, this passage of Scripture is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing you unto the day of redemption as a down payment, as a guarantee, as a deposit. And we have to remember something. We have to remember that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is all one long sentence in the Greek. It's one of the longest, I think it's the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. And so we have to look at the Paul's entire flow of thought. It is Trinitarian in nature, purposely. Paul begins with what the Father does, 
then moves to what the Son does, and then moves to what the Holy Spirit does. And it's all wrapped up in Christ. And it all flows from verse 3 that we've been given every spiritual blessing. And Paul begins to list the spiritual blessings. And he starts in eternity past with what God the Father has done. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's God's choosing. God predestined us to be adopted. That's God's predestination. Talks about how Christ redeemed us in His blood. How Christ forgave us on the cross. Okay, those are all past tense realities. When did the election take place? In eternity past. Who did the electing? Who did the predestinating? God the Father. When did redemption occur? When did forgiveness of sins through the blood of the cross happen? The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, did that 2,000 years ago. And yet, there comes a point in time when we do indeed hear the gospel, then we believe the gospel, and then we're sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And so the non-Calvinistic traditional Southern Baptists will make the argument that when did you, when were you marked in Him or when did this actually, when did you get in Christ? It's when you believed. And they will say, well, you have to believe in order to be in Him. And so what they'll say is, is that God arranged a plan of salvation to be in Christ And when you, through your own free will choice, make the decision, then you get in Christ. There's no election in Christ that happened in the past. What I'm arguing is that the entire sentence is all wrapped up in what the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, have done in Christ to ensure our salvation from first to last, going all the way back to election and predestination in eternity past by God the Father, to what Christ did in His work on the cross in real time back 2,000 years ago in the flesh when He came in the incarnation in His death, burial, and resurrection, and then what happens to us at a point in time when we actually do hear the gospel, when we do believe, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so we are elect in Christ When Christ died, we were included in Christ. And when the Holy Spirit dwells us and regenerates us and seals us, it's all in Christ. It's almost as if it's like the golden chain of redemption that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. There's no slippage in the links. And so when he gets to chapter 2, Paul is looking back at the life of a lost person and how that life has been transformed by being made alive in Christ. So all these spiritual blessings, predestination, redemption, adoption, all of these blessings that he introduces the letter with, it's almost like a flashback in chapter 2 where he goes back and says, Now, I just want to remind you, Ephesians, especially you Gentiles, who you were before God made you alive. Before you had all these spiritual blessings to you, let me just remind you of what your life was like before. And then that's how he starts chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, the question we've got to ask is, what does it mean to be dead? Does it mean we're simply sick? Does it mean that we can't do anything at all? Does it mean we're a lifeless corpse that has no impulses? What does it mean to be dead? 
Well, let's look at some, how some reputable Greek lexicons define that Greek term nekros. The, the, the word is nekros, the Greek term for being dead. Uh, the Ludnida, which I, I really like, um, there's the BDAG as well. Um, there's other ones. There's the, the Kittles, um, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Um, Lunida I like because I think it's pretty concise. But let me give you the definition from the Lunida. Necros, quote, pertaining to being unable to respond to any impulse or to perform some function. Unable, ineffective, dead, powerless. Since the reference in Ephesians 2.5, see also Ephesians 2.1, is to matters relating to God, one may translate, we who were unable to respond to matters relating to God because of our sin, or we who were spiritually dead. Now notice how the Lunida actually makes the statement there that the word necros means unable to respond because of our sins. They are saying that that word means inability, even in its own definition. Now, some of you may say, well, you picked a lexicon that lends itself more towards total inability. Uh, you know, you can play the game with different lexicons and how they interpret it. And of course, um, every Greek lexicon is going to have its own interpretive bent. But when it talks about being dead in trespasses and sins, it's, it's the locative of sphere. It indicates the sphere or realm in which we lived before we were made alive in Christ. There's a comparison and contrast. This is the sphere in which you were living in. You were dead. You, you, this was your condition. This was your state. You were dead in the sphere of sins and trespasses until God made you alive and then you were in the sphere of, of Christ. And it's interesting because we weren't dead because we committed sins. It wasn't the, the sins that made us dead. The deadness is what produced the sins. That's why we commit sins. It's the age-old question, do you sin because you're a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? We actually commit trespasses and sins because of our nature as dead sinners. So what comes first, the deadness or the sins? Do the sins produce the deadness or does the deadness produce the sins? No, the deadness produces the sins and trespasses. And why are we dead? Well, we're dead because we're in Adam. Uh, we are born dead. We are born in Adam. We are born in a condition, as, as, as David would say, uh, we, in, in sin did my mother conceive me from Psalm 51. Now, listen to how John Stott would comment on this passage of Scripture. I, I really like uh, John Stott, as you guys know. He's one of my favorite um, writers on preaching especially, but I really like his commentaries because he's very concise. Uh, he says a lot of profound things in a very short amount of pithy, pithy words. And so uh, John Stott defines deadness this way. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards him, in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. So we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death 
and that those who live in it are dead even while they are living. Great quote. And it would seem that when we're dead, it's really two, two spheres. Um, insensibility, you're, you're insensitive. The beauties of God, the holiness of God, um, the, the glories of Christ, we cannot, we are insensitive to those. We, we, don't, we don't see those. We don't comprehend those. We are um, unaffected by those. Uh, that, that's what it means to be dead. And it's also in incapacity, in capability. We, we can't somehow bring ourselves out of a state of deadness. We are unable. We are insensitive. We are corrupt. Every part of us is in a state of deadness. Now, what is Gerhardus Voss? Say now, you may not know who Gerhardus Voss is. Uh, he was born in, in Holland, but later came to America, and basically um, he lived from 1862 to, to 1949. He was a, a great um, American uh, theologian, especially from the Princeton School of Theology. Um, he, he's really the father of biblical theology. Um, let me just give you some words from him in regards to how he would define deadness. He says the first thing that strikes us in a dead person is that he lies there stiff and motionless. The same body that was formerly animated and suffused by the soul in its most delicate fibers and nerves willingly lent itself as a tool to the soul is now rigid and immobile, cold as a piece of marble. Likewise, in a spiritually dead person, one searches in vain for the heart throb of faith, the pulse beat of prayer, the breath of love, the look of sympathy for any expression of a hidden inward life. But not only is a spiritually dead person incapable of moving and developing any power of himself, receptivity to impressions from the outside is also lacking. All life has these two sides. It makes impressions and receives impressions. And in so doing, develops and grows. Both of these are lacking in the sinner in his natural state. He does not seek God. And when God comes to seek him, he does not answer, gives no sign of life, and remains insensible. When the word of God from which all spiritual life draws its sustenance is brought into contact with him, his eye does not see it, his ear does not hear it, his heart does not give assent to it. It goes by him like an idle sound. The natural man does not comprehend the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's a pretty graphic description, I think, Gerhardos Voss gives there. I really like the way he talks about that in a spiritually dead person, one's going to search for, is there a heartthrob of faith? Is there a pulse beat of prayer? Is there anything animated in a dead person that would be receptive or sensitive or capable of faith, of love, of anything that would lend itself towards pleasing God or, or towards um, coming to faith? And, and he says, no, we search in vain. Um, we, we, we cannot see that in the natural state of a dead person. Well, one of the commentaries that I used back in 2010 when I preached um, you know, verse by verse through the book of Ephesians was the Baker exegetical commentary. And if you um, get the Baker exegetical commentary, I highly recommend it. It's, it's one of the more technical commentaries. Um, Harold Honer wrote the, uh, the Ephesians commentary. And uh, let me give you his statement from this passage of Scripture. He says, As those who are physically dead cannot communicate with the living... Also, those who are spiritually dead 
cannot communicate with the eternal living God and thus are separated from God. They are lost and need to be found. They are dead and need to be made alive. Dead people cannot communicate and have no power to bring life to themselves. They can't communicate with the living. And what, and what I, I'd like to sit down and ask him, what does he mean by communicate? Uh, I think what he's trying to say there is a, a dead in sin person, a lost person, cannot respond, cannot produce faith, uh, cannot um, hear, cannot receive, uh, cannot do anything in and of himself in that state of deadness to, to bring about a response to God without being made alive, without the regenerating work. Now, being dead sometimes is mischaracterized as that, you know, corpse-like dead means you're just lifeless and you don't do anything. Um, that, that man is not active in rebellion. Um, but when you go on and read the rest of the verse, it talks about how you're walking. This is how you used to walk. Uh, enslaved to your flesh, following the ways of the world. And so being dead doesn't mean that you um, don't ever um, you know, rebel against, against God actively. And it doesn't mean that you don't do any outward good or civic good or natural good. Um, unregenerate man can do good in a sense. They can help an old lady across the street. They can volunteer at a soup kitchen. They can serve in the military and give their life for their country. Uh, they can, they can um, save a person's life through, through a medical procedure. Unregenerate men can do a lot of outward natural good. Listen to what the canons of Dort are saying. Apart from regenerating grace, men show some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior. But here's the point. It's not a spiritual good that springs from a regenerated heart that does good out of gratitude for salvation or by faith that pleases God. In other words, when we say a person's dead in sin, when we say a person's totally depraved, we're not saying that they don't do anything good in a sense. They can do outward, moral, civic, natural good. But can they do anything that is spiritually good, spiritually pleasing, out of pure motives to please and worship and glorify God. No, the unregenerate person cannot do that. Now, we've looked at Ephesians 2, dead in sin. We'll come back to that, but there are some other parallel verses that we also want to look at that do teach total inability. Now, these are verses that the traditional non-Calvinist Southern Baptist is going to argue against us and say, we take these verses to be differently interpreted. We don't interpret them the same way you do. Uh, we think that you got it wrong. And one of those is 1 Corinthians 2.14. So let's just pull up 1 Corinthians 2.14. Um, let me pull up here because I don't have it in front of me. 1 Corinthians 2.13. Oh, that's 2 Corinthians. Let's go, let's go to 1 Corinthians. Sorry for the delay here. Actually, 2.14. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not 
except the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul is making a contrast between the natural man and the regenerate man, the lost person, the saved person. And so he's saying that the natural person, when he talks about the natural person there, he's talking about a person in the flesh, a person who is unregenerate. They don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They just see him as foolish. They don't understand him. And, and, and what in context is the foolishness? What, what, is, what are, the, what are the, the, the things of the Spirit of God that are foolishness to him? Well, you don't have to, 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 to guess. You can go back in context and you go back up to chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So what are the things of the Spirit that are foolish? The preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the cross, the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. So when a natural, sinful, unregenerate person is confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ crucified, and all the, the, the glories that come from the gospel, it's just foolishness. It's, it's moronic. It does not make sense. He doesn't accept them. He does not accept them. Now, why does he not accept it? Well, Paul goes on to say he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, this is speaking about ability. He lacks the ability to understand these things of the Spirit, the things of the gospel. They have to be given by the Holy Spirit. There's an inherent inability in the unregenerate man from understanding these things. Now, let's just talk about this passage of Scripture. Um, A.T. Robertson, word pictures in the New Testament. Again, he was a professor of Greek and New Testament at Southern Seminary back in the early days of the seminary. And in his word pictures the New Testament, he makes a very interesting statement. He says that the natural man is the unregenerate man, while the spiritual man is the renewed man, born again of the Spirit of God. And when he says receiveth not, he does not accept, rejects, refuses to accept. In Romans 8, 7, Paul definitely states the inability of the mind of the flesh to receive the things of the Spirit untouched by the Holy Spirit. Certainly the initiative comes from God, whose Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to accept the things of the Spirit. They are no longer foolishness to us, as was once the case. So he's arguing there that it is an inability, that the things of the Spirit, the gospel, the message of the cross, the stumbling block to Jews and Gentiles, the foolishness, the, the message of the cross, the crucifixion of Christ, all of the glories of the, of the message of the gospel. We can understand the facts. We can have somebody explain to us the, the, the narrative from the gospel account. But we will not see 
The depth of the atonement will not see the depth of our sin. We'll not see the need for why Christ went there. We won't see the justice and wrath of God on display along with his love. We won't see any of that in the cross when presented to us because we do not have the ability to understand that unless the Holy Spirit does something. And so our argument is when the Holy Spirit makes us alive, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, when the Holy Spirit opens our blind eyes, then we are able to understand, we're able to receive, we're able to accept the things of the Spirit, the things of the gospel, and then God grants us the gifts of repentance and faith. D.A. Carson, one of the modern day, uh, probably the greatest New Testament scholars around living, um, in his book, The Cross and Christian Ministry, by the way, if you're, if you're in pastoral ministry, I highly encourage you to read The Cross and Christian Ministry. It's really a commentary on the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. It's almost like a, a commentary, but it's very good as far as helping us understand um, pastoral ministry. But notice what he says. He says this, quote, What we must constantly remember is that this human inability to understand spiritual things is a culpable inability. It is not that God makes us constitutionally unable to understand Him and then toys with us for His own amusement. Rather, He's made us for Himself, but we have run from Him. The heart of our lostness is our profound self-focus. We do not want to know Him if knowing Him is on His terms. It's a culpable inability. Yes, we are born unable, and God holds us accountable for that. We are unable from birth because of Adam's sin and God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. We are unable to do that. And if we don't do that, we will be held accountable. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their commentary says, not only does he not, but he cannot know them and therefore has no wish to receive them. And then references Romans 8, 7 as a cross-reference. Now let's go to Romans 8, 7, and 8 because that's another passage of Scripture that our traditionalist, non-Calvinist brothers will also argue with us and say, you got that wrong. So 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Romans 8, 7, and 8, Ephesians 2, 1, this whole issue of deadness, inability. Uh, we're all looking at these passages of Scriptures in different ways. But let's just read uh, Romans 8, uh, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, we've got some word there. You cannot submit to God's law. You cannot please God. Now, let me give you some quotes from some theologians. Robert Mounts, a great New Testament theologian, uh, the New American Commentary on the book of Romans. He says this, quote, How can they, since they are in bondage to a power that is in fundamental opposition to the nature and the will of God, not only are persons apart from Christ totally depraved, i.e. every part of their being has been affected by the fall, but are also totally disabled in their rebellious state, they cannot please God. Now, he says there we cannot Submit to God's law. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. In giving us the law, 
And God commanding us to obey the law in the Ten Commandments, in the totality of the law, God is commanding us to do something that He knowingly knows that unregenerate people lack the ability to do. And oftentimes you'll hear the argument from um, non-Calvinists saying, well, you know, why would God command us to repent and believe if we don't have the ability to do it? God wouldn't command something that He knows we can't do. That doesn't sound like something God would do. The, the, The implication is if we're commanded to repent and believe, we must have the inherent ability to do it. And what does Paul say right here? The mind that's set against God, the mind that's hostile to God, it cannot submit to God's law. God is commanding something, His law, to unregenerate people that He knows they cannot do. So here we have it. God is commanding something He knows we cannot do. Now, what is submission to God's law? Well, Paul says here that the unregenerate man is hostile in mind. Now, think about that word hostile. That means he hates God. He rebels against God. He does not submit to God's law. Now, Paul takes it a step further. Not only does he not do it, he cannot submit to God's law. And I don't think he desires to submit to God's law. So the unregenerate man doesn't have the desire to submit to God. He doesn't want to. He doesn't have the ability to. He can't. And he flat out doesn't. He does not submit. He cannot submit. He doesn't want to. Now that's in relation to God's law in verse 7. The hostile mind, the unregenerate man, those who are in the flesh... They cannot submit to God's law. Now, in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You've got two different verbs there. In in verse 7, it's submitting to God's law. In verse 8, it's pleasing God himself. One is in relation to God's law. The other one is in relation to God himself, the person of God, personally, not just his law, not just the inability to keep his law, but actually relating to God himself, pleasing God. It's an inability to please God. Now let's ask the question, what does it mean to please God? We lack the ability to do anything that brings pleasure to God. Now, here's what you'll hear a traditional non-Calvinist Southern Baptist say. They will say that a lost person still retains the ability to hear and respond to the very appeal God is making himself to be saved. So you are responsible. You are able. God gives the plea himself. We are Christ's ambassadors as if God is making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. God makes the appeal. You have the ability. But let me ask a question. Does God's appeal to save sinners please God? Does it please God to set forth His Son in redemption to reconcile sinners to Himself. Does it please God to plead with lost men to come to faith? If you say no, 
it doesn't please God, then you're not reading the Bible. It does please God to reconcile, to redeem, to bring lost sinners to faith. So even the appeal itself is pleasing to God. But what does Paul say? You cannot, in your hostile, unregenerate state, please God. You cannot. Which means that you cannot please God. You cannot do what is pleasing to God. What is pleasing to God? Being reconciled to God, coming to faith in Christ, believing, repenting, all the things related to the command of God's will, God's law. So not only can we not submit to God's law, but we cannot please God himself. And what most pleases God? Faith in his son, repenting. We cannot do that. So the spirit has to regenerate, has to make alive a lost person in order for them to do what is pleasing. And what is pleasing? Coming to faith in Christ. Now, how do I know that we're talking about a lost person versus a saved person in this passage of Scripture. Because Paul answers the question in the very, verse, very next verse, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You, however, he's making a contrast. You're not of the ones, you're regenerate. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You belong to Christ. You've been made alive in Christ. And so that doesn't describe you. What I was describing in the previous verses was an unregenerate person whose mind is hostile to God, who cannot, who lacks the ability to submit to God's law and lacks the ability to please God. Now, John Murray, obviously a strong Calvinist, in his Romans commentary uh, makes a great statement. It's a long quote, but let me I think it's worth reading. Here's what he says. Hence, by saying that they are in the flesh, cannot please God, the extent of the impossibility is expanded to cover the whole range of what is pleasing to God. This is an inference necessarily drawn from the first clause in verse 7 that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. But the apostle does not leave his readers to inference. He expressly states what it is to the effect that it is a moral and psychological impossibility for those who are in the flesh to do anything that elicits the divine approval and good pleasure. Here we have nothing less than the doctrine of the total inability of the natural man, that is to say, total inability to be well-pleasing to God or to do what is well-pleasing in his sight. In the whole passage, we have the biblical basis for the doctrines of total depravity and total inability. It should be recognized, therefore, that resistance to these doctrines must come to terms, not simply with the present-day proponents of these doctrines, but with the apostle himself. Enmity against God is nothing other than total depravity and cannot please God, nothing less than total inability. John Murray, tell us what you really feel about that. Pretty strong statement. Okay, so we've looked at Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in sin. God made you alive. We've looked at 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, we've looked at Romans chapter 8, but what I want to do is I want to interact with some verses that the traditional non-Calvinist Southern Baptist or, or, or traditionalist will use to somehow equivocate or redefine deadness. And so oftentimes they'll go to Luke chapter 15 with the parable of the prodigal son. Now, literally, I believe it's three parables as one. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost son. It's all framed by the fact that uh, Jesus was getting in trouble for welcoming the tax collectors and sinners. And so he tells them this parable and he goes on to tell three stories. But at the end of the prodigal son, you know the story. He comes out of his pigsty. He comes home. The father throws a party for him. The older brother representing the Pharisees, is upset because the father uh, rejoiced over someone who repented. And then in Luke 15, 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. And, and what they'll say is that we, we don't take the didactic teaching of Paul in an epistle where he explains doctrinally the, the theology of total depravity and total inability, we get our definition of deadness from this parable. Now, let me just do a little bit of hermeneutics with you, a little bit of understanding genre. When we talk about genre, we're talking about how do you interpret different types of literature in the Bible? And you have to approach different genres in different ways. If, if not, you'll be confused. For example, you do not read a box score the same way you read a political cartoon. You do not read a movie review the same way you read an op-ed piece in the New York Times or whatever. You don't read the stock exchange the same way that you would read a romance novel. Okay, there are different genres. There's just different ways of approaching reading these particular types of literature. And in the Bible, there's many different genres. And so one of the important things that you need to do in um, Bible study is understand the genre of what you're reading. And there's a lot of good resources out there that can help you understand this. But we have to understand that this is a parable. And we need to understand something about interpreting parables. Parables are not meant to give rich, deep, complex theological teachings on major issues of intricate theology. In other words, a parable is a story told by Jesus, usually with one or two main points, usually one, to drive home a point, and it's usually a story from natural life that is used to uh, get, get a response from his hearers. And what is the point of the parable of the prodigal son? The, par the parable is not about total depravity. The parable is not about total inability. The, 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 the fact that the, the son was dead and he was lost and he's found, the, the point is lostness. The lost coin, the lost sheep. The whole point of this parable is that God rejoices when a sinner repents. And just like there was rejoicing when the sheep was found and they threw a party... When the coin was found, they threw a party. There was rejoicing. When the son is found, they threw a party. The whole point of the parable is that when the son repented and came home, the father joyously received his son back. And so that's the main point. You don't want to build a theology on deadness and depravity and inability around a story 
that, that really presses the parable beyond its natural, natural meaning. And so when we think about getting our theology from parables, we need to be real careful that we get the main thrust of what Jesus is saying and then get our theology, get our doctrinal teaching, especially from the epistles where Paul lays forth an explanation of issues in, in explicit teaching on depravity and deadness. Now, sometimes parables can illustrate theology without directly teaching theology. And you can draw out implications and you can draw out inferences, but you do not build your theology of deadness or depravity or inability from a parable. You build it from the didactic, especially um, teachings in the epistles where it's fully laid out in in the doctrinal material uh, in in the Bible. Now, another place that um, they go to is James chapter 1, 13 through 15. Now, this is an epistle. James is an epistle. But James is a lot different than Paul. James's burden is a whole lot different than Paul's burden. James reads more like a proverb. It's very Jewish in nature. And so they'll oftentimes go to James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Now, what they'll say there is that you're not born spiritually dead. You, when you sin and make the choice, and and that eventually brings death. But I want to look at the progression of this passage of Scripture. What's the progression that... What's the burden that James is doing? Is James here teaching a theology of the condition of a lost person before they're saved? Is that what he's doing here? No. Or is he addressing believers and how and warning them against giving in a temptation? What's the progression? First of all, a temptation approaches. You're tempted. God doesn't tempt you, but but you're tempted by a temptation. And then it says there's a sinful desire. Now, the question is, and that that means sinful desire, why is that sinful desire there? Why is the desire there in the first place? Notice what he says. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. His own desire. Okay, where did that desire come from? Where did that sinful desire come from? Well, it's there because we were born with it. We were born in Adam. We were born totally depraved. And then even when we become a Christian, we still have indwelling sin. We still have remnants or vestiges of the flesh remaining in us. And from time to time, even as regenerate believers, that sin, that desire in us uh, can well up. And then he says, listen, you know, the desire, you, you, can, you have a choice. If the temptation comes and you have the desire, you can choose to act on it or you can choose to take that thought captive and, and pray and ask the Lord to deliver you from that. But if you actually give into that desire, it gives birth birth to sin. And Paul, or James uses a metaphor of giving birth here, the whole idea that um, a physical sin, you know, you may start in your mind, it starts in your heart, but you actually commit the physical sin. And then he says that when it's fully grown, like when it grows up, you know, you kind of give birth to it. Like it's, the, it's, it's this whole issue of, okay, there's conception, there's birth, there's full grown, and then there's, de- there's death. He kind of gives a metaphor of the human the human lifespan, if you will. Uh, you're, you're conceived in your mother's womb, then you're born, then you grow up, and then you die. And he says, ultimately, if, if you 
have a lifestyle where you're giving into sin like that, it's eventually going to lead to death. Now, James leaves it pretty um, nebulous as far as what that death is, but he's already made the case that the desire's there. Now you have to ask, well, why is the desire there? The desire's there because you're already sinful in your desire. I don't think he's talking about you become spiritually dead or he's making an equation anywhere related to what Paul's talking about. And besides that, who's his audience? He's talking about to Christians who are struggling with sin that they face as regenerate Christians with indwelling sin. That's not what Paul was doing in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul was doing a doctrinal teaching on the condition of an unregenerate person before God made them alive. That was his burden. In James, his burden is to warn in a proverbial type of way believers to not give in to temptation. So there's two different contexts, two different audiences, two different ways to go about doing that. Now, how do we know he's talking to believers? Well, just go on down in the chapter, James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, talk about God's sovereign regeneration. A lot of people say, you know, the book of James is so proverbial. It's, it's more like wisdom literature. It's, it's very Jewish in flavor. There's not a lot of deep theology. I believe that James 1.18 is the basis for understanding the entire book because he's talking to regenerated believers. It was of his own will that he brought us forth. Whose will was it? It was God's will. It wasn't our will. We didn't bring ourselves forth. God sovereignly brought it. And what does the word brought us forth there? The ESV says brought us forth. Literally, in the original Greek text, is to give us birth to birth us by the way of truth. It's just James's way of saying that God, by His own will, sovereignly regenerated us. God made us alive. So James here is not addressing being dead in trespasses and sins before regeneration. That's not his burden. His burden here is just to show how indwelling sin can take over the life of a Christian, and it's a warning to not give in to temptation. But his argument there, so to define deadness from James and equate it to what Paul is saying and to make, it, uh, to, to, to make a new definition of deadness or to, to pit one against the other is really not a good thing to do hermeneutically because they're not really talking about the same thing. Now, let's go to another place where they often go, and this is Revelation chapter 3. Now, genre, revelation, revelation is a weird genre. Um, revelation is a letter to seven particular churches. It's also apocalyptic, and then it has a lot of weird imagery and, and symbols and visions. And it's also prophetic, and then it talks about what's going to happen in the future. And so we need to keep that in mind when we're talking about the book of Revelation. And so in Revelation chapter 3, one of the seven churches, Sardis... Jesus makes this rebuke. And so when we read this, we, we can't build a theology of deadness and equate it to what Paul was saying because I want to explain to you why Jesus used the term dead. Okay, Revelation 3, 1 through 2. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. 
Now, maybe a, if we had a, a traditionalist here, they'd say, well, why would Jesus say um, they're dead and, and they can wake themselves up if they were already spiritually dead in the first place? Jesus is rebuking them because they had a reputation of being alive. This is the whole point of Jesus' point. This is the point. Sardis is the big church in town. Sardis is the happening, seeker-sensitive megachurch where everybody's flocking. They've got the great programs. They have a great reputation. It's the happening place where everybody wants to be. It's the popular church. But Jesus looks right through that and says, you know what, that, that's your reputation. But in fact, you're actually dead. Now, do we build a theology of deadness from here? Uh, are we saying that they are spiritually dead the way that Paul would say it? Okay, number one, Paul was talking about the condition of unregenerate people before God made them alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here in Revelation, he's talking to a church of regenerate people. And it's more of a metaphor of the fact that they are not actively being the church that God called them to be. They are compromising on the gospel. They're like whitewashed tombs. But here's the point. One of the things about the city of Sardis was what they had was the necropolis. Now, remember I told you what the word necros, dead, there was a necropolis, a cemetery of a thousand hills is what it was nicknamed because of the hundreds of burial mounds visible on the skyline about seven miles outside of Sardis. So when you lived in Sardis, you looked out on the skyline like you looked at the downtown of a city and it was the necropolis. It was the graveyard. It was the cemetery. So Jesus is using an image from their very own geography to poignantly address an issue in this regenerate church's life as a church. He's not talking about their spiritual condition. He's not talking about salvific terms. He's saying as a church, you have the reputation of being this um, great, thriving, um, healthy church, but actually... Look over on that hill over there. Uh, you're actually like the, the necropolis. You're, you're not doing what God is calling you to do. It's, all, it's very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. It was like this whole idea that they were given in to pragmatism, they were giving in to, to shining the apple when inside it was really rotten. And so again, Jesus is not in addressing the church at Sardis, giving a theological doctrinal explanation of what it means to be dead in sins and trespasses. He's using a figure of speech to talk about how this church, particularly in Sardis, was not fulfilling their purpose. And he used an image from their own culture and geography to drive home a point. Okay, so we've seen three verses that traditionalists use to define deadness. Deadness doesn't mean dead. Deadness doesn't mean lack of ability. Deadness is more like the prodigal son. Deadness is more like James. Deadness is more like Sardis. But let me just remind you, the first one is a parable. 
not teaching doctrinal truth, but telling a story. In the James issue, it's not teaching the condition of a lost person before they're saved. It's talking about temptation. And in Revelation, it's, it's more of an expression to help Sardis understand their condition because of their town. So you can't just look at the word dead, necros, and say, okay, this is what, you know, necros, this is what it means in James, this is what it means in Revelation, this is what it means in, in Matthew, this is what it means in Ephesians, and, and lump those all together and, and, give a defi- and give a theological definition of total depravity or total inability by hodgepodging all those together. You've got to look at context, you've got to look at genre, and you've got to look at the way that Paul specifically does a doctrinal teaching on the condition of unregenerate people before they are made alive. Now, the only other reference to deadness is the almost, that's parallel to Ephesians, is in Colossians, also written by Paul. Colossians 2.13. Now, this is a place where you can go and say, okay, here's where we can understand more fully the doctrine of total depravity and total inability when we've got a parallel statement especially by the same author in a different epistle that's worded almost the same way. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, now let's compare that with Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. Now, in the Colossians, he's saying you who were dead. In Ephesians, he's saying we when we were dead. And so both passages have this idea of being dead. Both say dead in our trespasses, a past tense reality. It's were, this is not who you are now, it's what you were. Both passages have God making us alive together with Christ. So God is doing the action. God's the one making alive. It's with Christ. But there are a few differences. In the Colossians passage, Paul does something interesting. He adds the uncircumcision as your flesh. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He he puts two statements there together that are really parallel statements. It's really the totality of the condition. Deadness means God must make us alive. Okay, so if we're spiritually dead, God must make us alive. Now, why does he use uncircumcision? What what does uncircumcision mean? It means that God needs to do a circumcision, not literally like of the foreskin that that, Abraham was required to do, but a, a spiritual cutting away of a dead, stony heart, giving a new heart. So when it talks about God doing a circumcision, God making alive, God is doing the sovereign work of cutting away the deadness, replacing the heart of stone, giving a heart of flesh. It's this whole idea that God must do the work because we have a dead, unresponsive, stony heart that needs to be circumcised. Now, the second difference is, as Paul says at the very end, by grace you've been saved in the Ephesians passage. In the Colossians passage, he says we've received forgiveness of sins. Pretty much basically the same thing, just a different take. One's, one's focusing on grace, the other one's focusing on forgiveness. But the main point in both passages is you were once dead, God made you alive. You were dead in the sphere of your sins. And God had to make you alive. 
And oftentimes we as Calvinists will go to a story in John chapter 11 and we'll talk about Lazarus coming forth from the tomb as a living parable of what God does in regeneration. And and we need to be careful. Uh, We don't want to play the same game that um, our our brothers do with Luke chapter 15 and, and build a theology of total depravity and total inability out of the Lazarus story. Um, I don't know if the, the point of the Lazarus story is to teach doctrinally on total inability or total depravity or sovereign regeneration. I think you can draw implications from that, but that's not your main teaching. Uh, the main teaching, I think, comes from Paul's explicit teachings in the epistles. But I do like the way George Whitfield put it. So I want to quote to you some um, from, from one of his sermons, the great revival preacher of the 18th century, a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards, uh, George Whitfield was, was from England. George Whitfield was very fond of really preaching on the new birth, on the need for regeneration. And so this is a long section of his sermon, but um, I do want to, to preach. I don't want to preach it, but I, I want to just read it to you. Um, this is what he says. Come, ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners. Come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, locked up and stinking in a dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go nearer to him. Be not afraid. Smell him. Ah, how he stinketh. Stop there now. Pause a while. And while thou art gazing upon the corpse of Lazarus, Give me leave to tell thee with great plainness, but greater love, that this dead, bound, entombed, stinking carcass is but a faint representation of thy poor soul in its natural state. For whether you believe or not, thy spirit which thou bearest about with thee, sepulchral in flesh and blood, is as literally dead to God and as truly dead in trespasses and sins as the body of Lazarus was in the cave. Was he bound hand and foot with grave clothes? So art thou bound hand and foot with thy corruptions. And as a stone was laid on the sepulcher, so is there a stone of unbelief upon thy stupid heart. Perhaps thou hast lain in this state, not only four days, but many years, stinking in God's nostrils. And what is still more affecting thou art? as unable to raise thyself out of this lonesome dead state to a life of righteousness and true holiness, as ever Lazarus was to raise himself from the cave into which he so long lay, thou mayest try the power of thine own boasted free will and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational arguments. But all thy efforts exerted with ever, with never so much vigor will prove quite fruitless and abortive. Till that same Jesus who said, Take away the stone, and cried, Lazarus, come forth, also quicken you. I wish I could preach that well. Those are some powerful metaphors that he's used there. And so when we think about deadness, what does deadness mean? It means both total depravity and total inability. We are totally depraved in all of our faculties. Our mind, will, and emotion in every part of us has been infected with sin because of Adam. 
through original sin, we've been corrupted. Now, it doesn't mean that we're as sinful as we can be. It doesn't mean that we're all Hitlers walking around uh, doing the maximum amount of sin that we can. God restrains much evil in the world. It just means that the totality of who we are has been corrupted, has been affected, has been tainted by original sin. And we're born in that condition of being in bondage to sin. We're children of wrath. We're dead. But it also means total inability. That because we are dead, because we are lifeless, because we lack any animating force within us to produce any good, we can't in and of ourselves come to faith in Christ. We can't produce faith. We can't produce affections that love God. We can't do things that please God. We can't understand the things of God. We are not only depraved, but we're unable to even respond to the appeals that God gives unless God himself does the work to make us alive. And when God makes us alive, evidence that we've been made alive is that we have faith. You see, the difference would be between us and our traditionalist brothers is that they would say it's through the faith that we are made alive. Our believing triggers God making us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. God still makes us alive, but it's through our faith. We contribute the faith. God makes us alive. We look at it just the opposite. Say, no, because we're dead, we can't trigger the faith. We can't produce the faith. We don't have anything in us to do that. God must totally quicken. God must animate. God must resurrect. God must make alive. And when God does that, then we cry out to him. Two illustrations, both from my friend, uh, Dr. Artazerdia, a pastor of Trinity Church in Portland. Um, he's, I've heard him preach these, and he's also, we've talked about this, but um, when he used to, when he and his wife were first married, they lived in a mortuary, um, and he worked there, and he lived, you know, so sometimes uh, they would go down in the embalming area, and, and he, he would say, you know, what would happen if I took a big um, safety pin and, and poked the toe of a dead person? What would happen? And you know, obviously the person's dead. Nothing would happen. Uh, they're lifeless. They're a corpse. They're, 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 they're dead as a doornail. Nothing would happen. They're, they're dead. And he says that's what happens to any response given through persuasive means or through preaching or whatever. Uh, we can be pricked. We can be prodded. We can, we, all these you know, responses, all these, these um, appeals can come to us, but because we're dead, we can't respond. We, we can't jump up. We can't respond. We, we can't do anything because we're dead. We have to be resurrected to life, and only God can do that. A dead person can't make themselves alive. He also says this, another good illustration from our desertia. He says, when you're a baby... In the womb, do you cry in order to trigger the birth? In other words, does the baby take the initiative to be the one to cause his own birth? Or does the miracle of childbirth cause the baby to be born? So in other words, does the baby push himself out by crying? Or is the baby pushed out by birth and the first thing the baby does is cry? He says in the same way, in our spiritual birth, God gives birth to us when we were dead. And the first thing we do is we cry out to God in repentance and faith. So the birth produces the crying. In other words, regeneration precedes faith. Why? Because we're dead in sin. 
And so hopefully this has been a helpful, I know we've kind of gone a lot of different directions, but hopefully it's distilled down to one main idea on this whole issue of being dead in sin. Um, just again, to give you a preview, um, the book, The Shack, was very popular many years ago, and they're coming out with a new movie. And so back when the book came out, um, I read it and I did a uh, really long review of it, about an eight-page review. And so because this movie's coming out, I'm probably going to be having a guest on a future podcast where we're going to discuss the movie The Shack and a lot of the bad theology in that. And so I'll be looking forward to that in the coming weeks um, with the new podcast. But thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I pray that you are having a great 2017. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make His face shine upon you, and as always, would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.